welcome back to Nerds Amalgamated. I'm the professor of games, an aspiring game designer and sci-fi expert, and my co-host is the DJ. Yes, and I know all about anime, movie, and all things pop culture. I am just a critical yet harmless fanboy. I wouldn't say harmless, really. <laughs> well, I, ha- I haven't done anything spectacular. Well, speaking of spectacular, tonight's topics are talking about the 13th Doctor and her exit, using oranges to diagnose cancer, and Qualcomm making their own handheld gaming device. So, on to Doctor Who. I know you're not a watcher, DJ, but did you watch any of Jodie Whittaker's episodes? I saw the season that uh, that had the master in it, um, especially the one about... Uh, when they revealed the origin story of the Doctor. Oh, and it was basically just a PowerPoint? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, how, ter- how terrible was that PowerPoint presentation? I'm not sure how any of this happened. Jodie's a good actress. Chris Chibnall is a bit hit or miss with writing. I think he's probably the key weak point, though. And the special effects have been mostly decent. So, and also the direction and editing... Well, the direction not so much, but the editing has been pretty decent. So I think the weak point has just been Chris Chibnall's writing and the direction. True. That's true. That's true. Okay, even if I grant you that, uh, you have to also give the fact that Jodie had had a little part in it, though. Like, she wasn't really, like, she didn't really have the uh, focus or the uh, gravitas. She was just basically copying David Tennant most of the time. No, she wasn't even doing David Tennant. I mean, she she had a bit of the hallmark, so like the whole hyperactive hyperactivity, like everything has to has to be has to do it somewhere. Go go go! That so kind that of myth. yeah, but Matt Smith was more controlled. Like it wasn't like no, not at all. Not at all. I I know. I I saw a bit. I saw the Matt Smith ones, and they were really controlled. Like they didn't really um, he didn't really like spat it like spaz out and run and go like all crazy and what no it was just yes he didn't overact that much but he was really controlled i don't know what universe you're falling through from (laughs) from but that is not how it was at all anyway we've just wrapped up flux which is the season-long serial event where they decided that instead of having uh, several episodes individually standing alone they were going to do a six-episode storyline. And a lot of us were thinking, maybe this is where Chris Chibnall turns it around. Because as much as I want to give, you know, want to love it, I've just been repeatedly disappointed by the last few years of Doctor Who. But I was thinking, maybe this is where it'll turn around, because Jodie can act when she's given the opportunity. I think she has it in her to be a good Doctor when given the opportunity. In fact, the best parts that I think she's done are her COVID message in character and talking to the Solitract in It Takes You Away. But Chris Chibnall is regarded as a better series writer than individual episode writer. He's worked on things like Broadchurch, which, funnily enough, also featured Jodie Whittaker and Doctor Who. No, sorry, and David Tennant. I mean, if I recall, I think... uh... When Chibnall was hired back, he he said, "If you um, it's it's either hire me and Jodie Whittaker, or don't hire, or don't hire us um at all, or something to that effect." Yeah, some of the direct well showrunners have come in with like a very strong idea of the actor they want to work with, but I think what made this 
um, set really controversial is that it's taking such a big dive into Doctor Who history, and it doesn't feel clear who he's actually writing for, because the storylines about the Timeless Child, they're the sort of thing that mostly older fans know about, but it's also not interesting for the older fans or the younger fans. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And, and then uh, Flux, well, Flux. There's been a lot of production issues with Flux. They started off with, I think, 11 episodes, and in the end, cut it back to six because of COVID. Ooh. So there's a couple of times you can notice things that make it clear this was filmed during COVID. Like one scene where there's a huge mob of people wanting to be rescued, and a character makes a point that the like they're going to be warped away by a transporter, basically. A character points out that it won't work if you stand too close together, as the excuse for why the mob weren't all hoarding around the transporter. So with, fl- uh, with Flux, how well was it received by... The viewership. Okay, so there's two episodes that were well-received, and they're the ones that could have been standalone episodes. They didn't do a whole lot to talk about the Flux. Those are War of the Centaurans and Village of the Angels. The other four episodes weren't great at all, and I'm not sure... It felt very rushed. There were a lot of different plot lines going on. I'd be really interested to see the full 11-episode outline and script and just find out how much actually was going to be in the original script. It's a... I can't blame it entirely on the script, though, on being cut back from 11 episodes, because the last two seasons, three seasons of Doctor Who, have not really shown us that Chris Chibnall can write well for the Doctor. The best Ah, episodes have been episodes he didn't do. Yeah. The reason why most people would most people would be unhappy with the uh, current Doctor is because it's not because okay people will say like oh we're not liking Joey Wicker I I disagree we like Joey Wicker in terms of in in terms of the, the stuff that she pulls off like her character her character and stuff it's just the direction and the writing that's been given to her like the stories yeah. that when record like people gave her a chance okay but. but Let's rewind back, okay? When when they first announced that she was the Doctor, people, even though people were re- are against it, people decided to give her a chance. I mean, a lot of people saw the first episode, and then afterwards, it just dipped into not so many people watching it currently. And while the viewership is dipping, there is also there is still this um, fan outrage because. Chibnall and his retcons have just messed up the show. Yeah, so it's like, yes, there are some people who stopped watching because they're sexist. I don't deny that they exist, but I don't agree that that's the main reason people stopped watching. I've kept watching because I absolutely love the show and I've been hoping for it to surprise me at some point. It didn't really, except for maybe Village of the Angels. Uh, It Takes You Away was one I actually really enjoyed. Yeah, but unfortunately, because of what we're seeing now, her legacy is going to be the retcon doctor. She will be labelled forever as the retcon doctor. Yeah, that's more Chris Chibnall than her. I know, I know, I know, but still... I think it's interesting, though, what she said about being the first female doctor. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so according to a The Guardian article written by Rebecca Nicholson... uh, Yeah, so here we go. She says, 
what if I have pitched this so badly wrong? What if I've ruined it for actresses? Because I know full well that when lads were cast in the part, they weren't representing men, they were representing their own personal casting. The way it was described in every outlet was not, can Jodie Whittaker play the part? It was, it's a woman. I suddenly thought, have I hindered us? Have I held us back? And it's tragic that she had to think, feel that way because there is that overbearing uh, narrative that it's bad because she's a woman and not bad because of all the other factors. And I'm really hoping that the show goes on. I don't know at this point who they're going to pick for the new Doctor, hmm. but I'm hoping at this point it hasn't ruined it for female Doctors. We've seen some actresses can play a female Doctor really well, particularly Ruth, who only got a few short scenes, but filled in some of the Timeless Child plot. She was played by Joe Martin and was able to, just in a few short scenes, show the gravitas and take control the way the Doctor should. Yeah. The good news is, it's happened now, so whenever they pick the next female Doctor, it's, you know, not going to have to have this argument again. I just hope that, you know, it's going to be tough for the BBC either way, because the people who complain because it's a woman are going to be upset if they pick another woman, because they all think the BBC's just pandering, like they thought when they picked Jodie to begin with, and... If they go back to a male doctor, they'll say, look, the BBC's admitted they're wrong. It's a bit of a lose-lose scenario. But but here's the thing, though. Like, in the, of whoever does the next doctor, it won't... Um, the guys behind uh, the Doctor Who productions, it's going to be... Cha- whoever... Tr- it's going to be changing hands anyway, so... It is. Yes, they're because... completely overhauling. Yeah. Going was... back to Russell T. Davies and his production company, Bad Wolf which is made up of a lot of the people who worked with Russell in the uh, first few years of the revival. Yeah, and not and not too long ago, Sony has bought um, Bad Wolf. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder how that's going to work out. Hopefully it means they'll get more budget. Hopefully Sony won't be too overbearing because I think Doctor Who is at its best when it's done by someone who really understands what it is. Oh, yeah. And I think having... What I'm worried about is that when Torchwood went and did a uh, sort of joint production with an American company, it was garbage. So I'm hoping that Sony doesn't isn't too overbearing and lets Russell do what needs to be done. But, then that's, but here's the problem. Sony... Unlike the BBC, which is which is the government-owned company, Sony is a privately-owned company, and they will have their own set of expectations, like how to make the show marketable, sell toys, start wooing the fans again. And yeah. So they'll have their own expectations. Yes, so, I'm worried about that as well. So whatever direction they're gonna go, they're gonna go with Sony gonna go. It might rival again. It might um, affect BBC in terms of viewership as well. So it's going to be a very complex game. But I think the first thing they need to do is try and win the fans back and res- and and try and respect the audience again because I think that's what's lost during the Whitaker era. Oh, so Chris Chibnall was really bad about show don't tell. Mm. Like Doctor Who has always had a lot of talking and a lot of explaining things, but. Chris Chibnall was really bad about it, especially with things like Ryan's dyspraxia. He'd bring it up every now and then and be like, hey, you know I'm dyspraxic, but then it never actually affected him. 
Like, there's a scene in the second episode of Jodie's first season where he grabs a gun and shoots down a bunch of robots, like, running around shooting them. And his dyspraxia doesn't affect him at all, but <laughs> we see in the first episode, there's a few scenes where it does affect him. And it really felt very inconsistent. So, for, for the uninitiated, what is dyspraxia? Uh, it's a condition affecting your coordination. Okay, and how bad can it get? I actually don't know. I can see from the NHS page, it says that it affects your coordination, balance, and movement, how you learn new skills, think, and remember information at work at home, your ability to write, type, draw, and grasp small objects. So the right way to do a disability is to not like make a big deal about it and just have the character dealing with that disability as they go through the plot. But Chris Chibnall just had Ryan being like, hey, I'm dyspraxic, but then never actually having to deal with it, except for a couple of scenes where he decided, right, this is the one where the dyspraxia actually affects you. He goes from not being able to ride a bike to being an absolute master gunman in the space of an episode, and then says that he's good at guns because he played COD. Oh, that's a. Ah, oh, are they trying to say, are they trying to do the whole video games are good at at stuff? No, they weren't trying to say anything about that. If Chris Chibnall was trying to say anything, you knew it, because there's an episode where they go to Future Earth. It's called Orphan Fifty Five. Oh, and yeah. they land on this planet, and it's a wasteland filled with monsters that uh, breathe CO2 and hunt and kill the humans and aliens, because they're not all human in that episode. And then yeah, right that- at the end, the Doctor's like, this is Earth with global warming. <laughs> it's not too late to stop it. I, I saw that. And in the episode dealing with mental health, right at the end, Ryan basically looks at the camera and says, mental health's an issue. Check on your mates. Oh, that sounds so blatant. Yeah, oh, Chris isn't very subtle. It felt, it, it, the way you say it, it sounds like it's a, it, it, they're trying to make an ad out of it. Like, Yeah, it really feels like they're just like making a PSA. On. Yeah. And it feels tacked on and doesn't work at all. And that's the thing, like with most of the um with the Jodie Whittaker t- um stories, they're 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 not like going out of space and uh exploring the exploring the deepest, darkest parts of the of space and whatnot. Like Doctor like when you looked at t- Tenant era, the Smith era and the Capaldi era, it was basically okay, we're gonna go out to different various regions parts of space and check out all these cool and dark and um interesting stuff but no in the jody wicker side it was basically let's go back to um sheffield um old time old england all this all the time traveling stuff which was basically the the most controversial parts of history mind you and let's just make it into a yes see this is what happened back in the day and we must never be like it and we're telling you not to be like it, even though you're not leaving the audience to make up their mind. Okay. I feel like you haven't watched much Doctor Who, and I know that because you've told me. Yeah. But yeah. they spend a hell of a lot of time on Earth in every Doctor Who series because space is expensive. So they never really got around to going off Earth as much as you'd think they would. Yeah, that's true. And then yeah. in floods. 
which, you know, real world issues got in the way there. Everything was centered around Liverpool. Every character was from Liverpool. Almost every episode was in um, Liverpool. Earth was in Liverpool. Yeah. And it's just like, really? The whole world is in danger. The whole universe is in danger. And it's going to be saved by, like, three people from Liverpool. At least it did handle the disabled character better. She doesn't get many scenes, but there's a woman who is missing an arm. And when she picks up a gun and is a crack shot with it, she doesn't say, I play COD. She says, I play laser tag, which is a much better reason why she'd be good with guns. It is a laser gun, so she doesn't have to deal with recoil. Yeah, it's much more believable as well. Yeah, so Chris Chibnall's just not being great, and I'm really looking forward to what happens next. I don't think Jodie has ruined it for the actresses. I think there are tons of female, like, like of women who can play the Doctor and do it absolutely amazingly. I think there's a whole suite of problems that have come together to make it so mediocre. And I'm really looking forward to, well, in a way, I'm looking forward to the specials just to get them over with. I'm looking forward to Russell T. Davies coming back in three episodes and 12 months. And I don't mind either way whether this doctor is male or female. Just make sure they're the right person for the job. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you there on, on that sentiment. Like, with the next uh, with the next doctor, like, even if it's a man or woman, I just hope they have the gravitas to go, yes, it's an honor to play as the Doctor and treat it with with respect. And I I just hope the I hope Russell gets a a good set of like uh, writers and stuff to competently write a good episode. Well, I'm hoping that coming back with Bad Wolf is going to fill in a good portion of that. Yeah, yeah. It does feel a bit like bringing back Russell is in a way throwing something at us to get us to calm down about Chris Chibnall. But it is, you know, if it saves Doctor Who, I don't know how many more years of Chris Chibnall Doctor Who could have in it. I don't want Doctor Who to be cancelled again because it's my favourite show ever and I want it to keep going forever. So, you know, let's hope that it hasn't ruined it for the actresses and that the people being horrible to Jodie quit it and that things are better next time. I second that motion. It's... Very tragic to hear that she felt this way, but I do like uh, one of the points here she makes. So in Village of the Angels, naturally, it's a weeping angel story. There's tons of angels. Mm -hmm. Jodie says that when she was on set and she'd forget which ones were actresses and which were statues and just be in between takes and then one of them would move and she'd jump. So our science topic for tonight is a new cancer diagnostic tool invented by an Australian scientist. Now, I've already said it uses oranges, but that's not what I would have been expecting. But this is a special kind of oranges. Rotten oranges. (laughs) You know, we come up with the most craziest things known to man. I mean... Yeah, so... Corey Elizani, a PhD student at the University of Sydney, figured out that you can use rotten oranges to create a, it's called a nanobiosensor, which is a fluorescing uh, molecule that indicates a cell's pH. And the reason that's important is because cancer in its early stages is an indicator, well, acidity is an indicator of cancer in its early stages. So if you take a biopsy and treat it with this nanobiosensor, and it fluoresces, 
it's an indicator that something might be wrong. So did they say how bad the oranges have to be before they uh, use it to detect cancer, or...? No, he doesn't, but they basically cook it in a pressure cooker. He says, we throw all the ingredients together, in this instant, rancid orange juice and some water, into a reactor which somewhat resembles a pressure cooker, tightly close the lid and place it in a scientific oven heated to 200 degrees Celsius. I quite like this because rotting food is a major source of methane, and this takes away the uh, rotting food and processes it into something else. So it would be a way to help reduce methane emissions from landfill, use up food waste, and produce medical products. I wonder what, uh, what other foods we can use for medical treatments. I do see a related article linked to from that page for mushroom shoe soles. Oh, no way. No way. Yep. That's amazing. And it uses the mushrooms and a um, microprocessor to monitor your foot health. The, the interesting part is how are you going to, how would you market this thing and put it into pharmacies? The mushroom shoes? Both. The mushroom shoes uh, and the. Rancid oranges. Well, the rancid oranges are something you wouldn't really market. You'd go to your doctor and your doctor would say, it looks like you might have cancer. Let's take a biopsy and get it analyzed. And then they ship your biopsy away to a lab and the lab analyzes the biopsy and tells you what's going on. So it's not really something you need to market to the individual. The shoes, though, I don't know. I mean, they're supposed to be ethical and natural and environmentally friendly, and they also do your health. So they'll probably sell it at posh pharmacies. I think with the uh, rancid oranges used for uh, trying to trying to find malignant cells, I think it's pretty useful in terms of if we can if we can find it at, at the earliest, then we could uh, we can immediately give you the meds to. Uh, to treat your disease at a very quick rate instead of, okay, we're going to have to wait weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks for yeah, medication. Yeah, I hope this is cheaper and easier to use than traditional diagnostic methods. Our uh, quickest di medical diagnostic imaging device would be the MRI, for example. And But then the problem with that one is they take about, what, 24 to 48 hours? Well, so would this. It would still take a couple of days to get it processed. But the advantage is that an MRI or CT would be more likely to notice a larger tumor. But if you take a biopsy and have a look, you can notice it when it's still small and figure out that someone's developing cancer, hopefully before it gets to an advanced stage. And all it takes is a pipette to, um, to, to examine whether there's cancer cells. That's the awesome part about this. Well, a fluorescence microscope, which isn't cheap. Yeah, yeah. But the application for uh, first, though, is just, I just take a pipette, put it on it, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's pretty exciting, really. Oh, yeah, yeah. It'll probably be a couple of years before it's, you know, available, but I that's think it's, yeah, a really good use of resources. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine, um, can you also imagine other vegetables that are used for cancer detection, like, Imagine that they go like, oh, we ran out of orange juice today. Okay, try a tomato or try a, try other well, are, vegetable juices. Yeah, they are using the acid from the um, orange. So you could probably use other fruit, fruits and vegetables that are acidic. So tomatoes might work. Lemon and lime. <laughs>
That'd be pretty cool. Can you imagine going, you being the doctor and you tell your patient, okay, we tried the uh, tomato test. Uh, it, did, it didn't say uh, he had cancer, but we tried the orange test and it's saying you have cancer. Doctor, what are my results? Well, I can't compare them. They're oranges and apples. <laughs> oh, no. No. <laughs> so moving on. Uh, last topic for the night is the new Qualcomm mobile gaming dev kit. With all the hype over the Steam Deck, there's a couple of other products, mostly made in China, very cheaply, that are available already. But this is the made by Qualcomm, who you probably know of as the company that makes the processors for Android phones. I think they used to make them for iPhone, but I'm not sure they do anymore. Well, no, they wouldn't because now iPhones use Apple chips, which I think are made by Foxconn. Yeah, Foxconn. What that? What a company that 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 thing is. Yeah. So Snapdragon is partnered with Razer using a chip they call the G3X Gen One to make a Qualcomm gaming device. So it's not a Razer device, which is interesting, but it's a 6.65 inch OLED display with full HD plus and 10-bit HDR, a webcam, two microphones, and this is just a dev kit, so it's going to be a while before we actually know what is the final uh, configuration. The renders on the Razer website are actually looking a bit like a Steam Deck shaped device. I don't know if there's a generic name for that form factor. It looks... It looks a bit like the uh, yeah. It looks a bit like the Steam Deck. I agree. I agree with you there. But also, then everything would. Your yeah. options are kind of controls to the sides of the screen or controls to the bottom of the screen. Mm-hmm. You know, like Nintendo devices. The one thing that's going to be interesting is how will Steam come back and say, "Hey, you're copying our design. Cut it no, out." I don't think so. I think Steam's goal is to create the Steam Deck to push people, other companies, into making their own mobile devices, the same as they did with Steam Link. Um, Steam Controller never really took off in that way, but Steam doesn't, well, Valve in general, don't really like the idea of being locked to PC, and we can see that from their work on Linux in the last decade or so, because they've realized Microsoft is trying to lock things down and doesn't want you being able to run your own software. They want everything to go through them so they can have a cut. Naturally, Valve aren't a fan of that, because Valve don't want to pay extra to Microsoft. So they started working on SteamOS, which is a Linux distribution, to combat that. They also made devices like Steam Link and Steam Machine, which were designed to help them break the grip of Microsoft. Now, it never really panned out, but Microsoft did back down on locking down Windows as much as they said they were. It'll be interesting to see how production of these devices goes, because we're still going through the uh, the silicon shortage. I mean, that's go- that's going to hamper a lot of uh, companies, though. I mean, Qualcomm are not are not the first, but they won't be the last that's to suffer this shortage. I mean, Intel, NVIDIA, Radeon. Yeah, well, basically anyone that uses silicon is having issues, right? Yeah. What's going to be... Oh. It's hard to fix that because getting a silicon plant going from scratch is a you know five to 10 year endeavor. So it's entirely possible this shortage will last another five years, maybe. What's interesting to me is that this is a gaming de- a, 
a dedicated gaming chip. I mean, it's it's interesting in terms of we. I've, I've also noticed this that there are a lot of ga- uh, dedicated gaming stuff coming out as of late. Yeah, well, it's the biggest industry in the world, or one of them anyway. It's definitely the biggest entertainment industry in the world. So there's a lot of money out there for people to get their hands on it. I think that's why you're seeing a lot of companies trying to get into it. Hmm. But here's a, okay. So from a ga- from a game developer's perspective, this uh, new uh, dev dev gaming chip has it. Uh, it will it consequently h- help you in a, in, a, in in the long term or hinder you from an aspiring g- uh, game um, game dev's perspective. The biggest pain will be compiling for it. So with devices that use x86 or x64 i know that the engines i'm using are going to support that anyway the difficulty is if this is running on a custom architecture it's probably running on arm i haven't figured that out yet but whatever it's running on if it isn't supported by the engines it's not going to be easy for your average game developer to make a game for it and a device without games isn't going to sell but then steam deck is i think going to be an arm chip I know, I'm wrong about that. It's an AMD chip running an APU, which is x64. So most game engines will already support x64. It's the same reason why you can't run most phone apps on PC. So phone apps are compiled for ARM, and your PC is most likely running on x64. So to run a phone app on your PC, you need to run some sort of emulator. Apple worked around that because they decided the easiest way to deal with as a side effect of making their own chips is that they now make chips for their PC, well, their laptops, PCs, and mobiles. And they're all the same architecture. So you can take code written for an iPhone and just slap it onto a MacBook, and it works. The issue is you can't run x86 and x64 on there natively, so then they have their own thing called Rosetta to let you do that. And then the performance isn't always the best because you've got an emulation layer in place. It's not optimized for that architecture. The uh, M1 architecture is actually quite different to the X64 architecture. Ultimately, so, it's a very complicated issue, but it's for people who are a lot better at programming than I am. That's fair. That's fair. They'll start off by writing a interpreter. So I don't know what architecture this Qualcomm device is yet, but to release games on it, you uh, to develop the engine, you'd basically start off by porting a language to it, probably C++. You'd write a compiler. If it's a standard architecture like ARM, there will already be a compiler, but then you'll need to tweak it to get the best performance, uh, optimize for the specific architecture of the uh, G3X, support any special features it might have then someone will write an operating system that will go on that probably qualcomm or razor will be doing this stuff they'll make a, an operating system that will load the games and i'm expecting just wild guessing probably going to be an arm chip running and so they'll port android to it which won't be too hard, but again, optimization and development. Yes, they do actually say it will be running Android in the article. And then if you want your games to run the best on it, you then need to compile your games targeting a G3X to make sure they take advantage of the G3X uh, optimizations. It does seem like they aren't targeting a direct competitor with Steam Deck, though, because by running Android 
they can't natively run x86 or x64, which means they probably won't have the performance to run most games directly on the console. And they do say in the article that it will be streaming from cloud gaming and your home PC. So maybe, so maybe they're trying to rival against the Nintendo Switch with all this, with with all the te- with all the chipsets and whatnot. Yeah, that's an option. I'm not sure who makes the Switch CPU. Tegra based, which is NVIDIA, but I'm not sure who actually manufactures that um, CPU. It's a quad core uh, Cortex A57. Yeah, uh, so it's ARM based. Yeah, NVIDIA Tegra, it's an NVIDIA. Yeah, but NVIDIA doesn't own the fabs. Qualcomm doesn't actually own their own fabs either, really. So anyway, I think we're getting a bit lost in the weeds. Yep. I'm looking forward to this device. I'm not sure it will be great, though. I think it will rely on the support of the cloud gaming and streaming, and there's no guarantee that that will be great, but you will be able to play mobile games on it, so you can play mobile Fortnite or mobile PUBG, and those are huge in Southeast Asia. So it's entirely possible that that's where they're target- targeting this device. With uh, this chipset, we might be able to play emulators as well. Yeah, someone will eventually port an emulator to it. There are already emulators on Android, and they all run. They might not run the best, so it might take a while to get the best performance because someone will need to optimize it. We'll see how it goes, I think, but I wouldn't be surprised to see this turn into an emulation device. So we'll take a short ad break and then be back with our shout-outs and events of interest. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So DJ, are you into chess? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes I'm into chess. Well, we're talking about Magnus Carlsen, who, like, as a five-year-old, would have probably been able to beat you. Almost <laughs> certainly if you only play chess sometimes. I think he became a grandmaster at 14. This guy is an absolute legend. And he's just won the World Chess Championship again. <laughs> he's held the championship since 2013. Damn. And broke a record for longest match in the final match of the championship. So in the sixth match against Ian... I saw how to pronounce his name the other day, but I'm going to get strong. Neponanachi. It took him 136 moves and nearly eight hours to beat. Sorry, it's not Ian, it's Jan. It took 136 moves and eight hours, exceeding the previous longest game, 124 moves during the 1978 match between Karpov and Korchinoy. And it's the first world championship game that hasn't ended in a draw in five years. That is a record. Yeah, Magnus is just insane. Here's an interesting one for you. But we've you spoke you just spoke about the longest chess game Magnus one. Have you heard about the shortest chess game Magnus one? Uh no, I haven't. So there's a game where he versed against uh, Vidit Gujarati, and he just beat him in five moves. Ooh. And, That's uh, a mistake. Someone like something got screwed up there horribly. <laughs> what what what's even more crazier was so 
at the fifth move, Magnus uh, said, uh, want to draw? And the guy admitted the draw. Afterwards, when you see the video, it was, it was like it was gesturing like, go away now kind of thing. But the real story was Magnus was act- before the game was having stomach troubles. <laughs> oh yes, I've heard of this. <laughs> and he beat the guy in just four moves. And and then afterwards he just goes back onto the couch and he's like, Oh, I don't feel well. I was like So that- how fast would he have beaten Yarn if he'd had food poisoning this week? <laughs> Can you imagine just like I just beat you in three moves, buddy, and I'm feeling in pain. What are you gonna do about it, huh? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Magnus just draws the game out to play with people. I'm not entirely sure this guy isn't actually an android. Uh, but the guy that he that Magnus beat, he was also a chess champion as well, which is even which was crazy. I'm a, and I'm like, yeah, I know he's beating chess champions when he's sick in five <laughs> moves. <laughs> this guy can like see the future or something. So the he took the championship on the fourth of December. I oh, know, sorry, not on the fourth of December. That was the date of the longest championship only wrapped up a few days ago. Yeah. Yep. There's also a great gif. Jan made a big mistake, and Magnus just looks at it like, What the hell did you just do? No way. Are you serious? Yeah, it's an incredible gif. Just the the expressions his face goes through. It's like, are you serious? So I'll put a link to that GIF in the show notes. And I see the top comment there is an explanation on Jan's name. Jan Nyipanishi. Our next shout out is on the 7th of December. We passed the 20th anniversary of Ocean's Eleven, the 2001 edition, obviously. A remake of the 1960 film of the same name. This one featuring George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Don Cheadle, Andy Garcia, Bernie Mac and Julia Roberts. You've never seen this movie, have you? I haven't seen this one. I am a fan of heists and capers, so I should get around to it, but I haven't seen this one. The interesting part about uh, one of the characters in that movie is that he's not... Dot and Cheadle had to uh, impersonate a a person with a Cockney accent, and it was not that great. Oh, dear. But the heist itself was a pretty was a pretty good plan if it if it if it really works. And on the eighth of December, we had the fifteenth anniversary of the Wii. The Wii, obviously, being the catastrophic event where the man with the world's largest bladder. No, I'm not <laughs> going to go there. <laughs> oh, the Wii being Nintendo's console. Actually, people did die because of Wii when the Wii was released. There was a radio station that held a competition, Hold Your Wii for a Wii, and one of the contestants died from drinking too much water and holding it in. Oh, I heard about that. And there was a court case, there was a whole court case about it, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Oh, man, that was a that was a shitty way to go. Yeah. The Wii is a great console, though. Like, it's simple enough for anyone to play. I think that's what has given it its staying power. Like, if your grandma can play it, then you know you've hit something good. Apparently, they use them in nursing homes for exercise. Although the additional, although the additional stuff on the Wii, though, that was they were kind of an unnecessary at, at one point, though. Like when you had the Wii U. As well, that was awful marketing. They didn't like make it clear that the Wii U was a whole console. 
just seemed like an add-on for the Wii. There also weren't a whole lot of classic games to come out of it. There weren't the for motion games like Wii Sports. Mm-hmm. The funny thing about the, the funny thing about the uh, Wii's release in Europe was the marketing and how they used a lot of celebrities for the Wii's release. Yeah, like Pat- just about every console and game launch does that these days. But can you imagine Pat Cash uh, promoting the Wii? I have no idea who that is, so no. Uh, he is a very infamous tennis player that that has a habit of uh, uh that has a habit of uh, screaming. Oh, no, 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 not not Pat Cash. That was a. I'm, I was thinking McEnroe. Uh, Pat Cash. He is an Australian tennis player, and he's got some interesting moments. But uh, Ian Wright. Where have I? I've heard that name, Ian Wright. He's a football player. Was a football player. Okay. Oh, by the way, with the uh, hold your Wii uh, contest, yeah, I I I just found the uh, court case and uh, eighteen million dollars in damages. Wow. Yeah, I think that's the most interesting part of the Wii that the the motion controls and the balance board. Even with the Switch, we haven't really seen anything like it since. Oh. I mean, they you do get the elements of the Wii in the Switch as well, like the uh, um, the wheel, for example, the steering wheel. Yeah, not like as many well. games seem to use motion controls on the Switch. Except uh, that's true, but I think it's more. I, I think that one is more more targeted at the uh, fitness kind of thing. And I'm, I mean, th- we haven't seen much. There, there hasn't been much driving games except for uh, Mario Kart. That's Use the Joy-Con wheel, has it? No, I don't think... Well, serious driving sims like Gran Turismo and Project Cars and all of that don't really release on uh, the Nintendo consoles, and I don't think that the motion controls would do much for them because the sort of people who are into Gran Turismo either happy playing with a controller, although a motion controller might not have the calibration to do it. I'm not sure exactly how good the calibration for the motion controller was. It's been many years since I've played a Wii. But the key issue is people who are seriously into racing games have their own wheels, like with a mechanical sensor. They're not just floating in air. Yeah. So for our last topic tonight, the wacky movie. On the 7th of December 1979, Star Trek went where no Star Trek had ever gone before and released in theatres. I'm not sure you've got the right music there. Well, it's technically, uh, it's sort of the intro to Star Trek. Yeah, you're pretty tone deaf, though, so. <laughs> oh, really? No. You're all over the place there. <laughs> but uh, this movie was an absolute classic. Yeah, I don't remember. Is it the even ones or the odd ones? think a good star trek movie i thought it was the even ones that are the good star trek movies okay uh looking at the imdb it's hard to say because they're all fairly even although yeah, yeah so the first star trek is 6.4 out of 10 um star trek 2 is 7.7 3 is 6.7 4 is 7.3 so yeah it's the odd ones no sorry the even ones that are good yeah even tv tropes say that as well uh, they they call it the Star Trek movie curse. Yeah, it must have been so exciting to see this, though. I imagine it was something like how exciting, like something as near as exciting as it was for me to see June. 
Oh yeah, and there there were so many uh, there are so many interesting facts with with this uh, with this movie release. I, I I couldn't fit them all into into the show notes. Uh, a couple of them, so for example, William Shatner, who saw the completed film for the first time at the world premiere, was struck by the overall sluggishness of this film and was convinced that Star Trek franchise died there and then. He opined. <laughs> he opined. Well, that's it. We gave it our best shot. It wasn't good, and it will never happen again. Recalling his initial reaction 15 years later, he added, shows you what I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad he was wrong about that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there was another one. The cast hated the uniforms, which required assistance in order to be removed. In particular, William Shatner had to wear to uh, had to st- had started to wear a corset in the 1970s the lines of which could be seen visible underneath his uniform in certain scenes. One of the cast's conditions for returning in, in a sequel was to have new uniforms, which led to the creation of the red tunic uniform seen in later films. I like that the studio decided that the ending was too ridiculous and Gene Roddenberry had an argument with them, and they decided, right, let's go ask Isaac Asimov. <laughs> It's like, let's go to the smartest man in the room. Hey, Isaac, what do you think? Yeah, Isaac thought it was good, and his main change was that the word wormhole was, and that it should be a temporal tunnel. And uh, here's another one for you. This was uh, Gene Roddenberry had first proposed a Star Trek feature at the 1968 World Science Fiction Convention. This film would have to be set before the TV series, showing how the crew of the first of the Enterprise meet. This was later used in Star Trek 2009. I also see that this is the first movie tie-in Happy Meal toy. Oh yeah, McDonald's did. And this was the this was also the uh, one that had Marvel Comics as well appear in it. So uh, interesting fact: Marvel Comics did a three-issue adaptation of this film to kick off their new Star Trek comic book series. In this adaptation, there was a sequence of features, memory wall, that differed from Spock's trip outside the ship in this film. It appears Marvel was using the original script as the basis for the adaptation and didn't know the memory wall scene has been scrapped. It first appeared in its entirety as the, Mar- as the Marvel Super Special for December 1979. They also created smoke for one of the special effects by wrapping aluminium foil around an actor's arm hiding it under his uniform and dripping ammonia and acetic acid onto the um, aluminium to generate smoke. No. Oh, that must yeah. be painful. Yeah, they did burn the actor at one point. Oh. It also features the Diltans, who are highly sexual beings. The navigator, Ilya, has an oath of celibacy because no human could survive a sexual encounter with a Delta. Jeez, Gene Roddenberry, go to horny jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm sure that there was a bonking sound in the end of that that script writing. Someone someone bonked Gene Roddenberry's head. (laughs) Well, a deleted scene that was counted in the novel has Sulu standing up awkwardly because he has an erection. <laughs> that is not what I would have been expecting from Star Trek. Oh, uh, thank God that didn't appear in the movie. Can you imagine the kids watching it? 
<laughs> yeah, I know Star Trek has like adult themes and, you know, sex and relationships are a big part of it, but wow. <laughs> it was originally rated G. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, imagine if they do a remaster of this movie and included that scene in there. Oh boy, that would be rated in one P- of the director's cuts. Oh boy, that would be a PG, you reckon? Or yeah, they re-rated a PG later. To be fair, at the time, like in the seventies, a lot of movies that wouldn't pass as PG or G got rated that because they didn't have the higher ratings at the time. Like in the US, they used to have PG thirteen, which is basically PG with a thirteen minimum age. And I think it was Raiders of the Lost Ark that got them to bring that in, because obviously that has the scene where the people melt. Yeah, yeah. And and I like this one. Uh, George Takei said that after all the various rumors and false reports of a Star Trek project, his initial reaction to the first official announcement of the film being made was, yeah, right. And fans called it Star Trek, the motion sickness Star Trek The Motionless Picture, and Star Trek The Slow Motion Picture. (laughs) Oh, no. Well, that's all we have time for tonight. DJ, where can they find us? They can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, that'snotcanon.com, where we have an archive of our old episodes and new episodes. And they can also find other That's Not Canon podcasts, such as Now That's Interesting. And what is Now That's Interesting about? Uh... Now That's Interesting is a podcast about knowledge and beliefs they've said on their blurbs. Well, certainly an interesting concept. Please don't kill me. (laughs) Boo! That's all, so look after yourself, stay hydrated, and we'll see you next time. See you guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.